0: Hello, and welcome to the 90 Minutes Or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films for 90 Minute Or Less Runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by film critic, co-host of BBC Radio 4's Screenshot and author of the new book, Screen Deep, How Film and TV Can Solve Racism and Save the World, Ellen E. Jones. Hello, Ellen.
1: Hello. Thank you very much for having me on your lovely podcast.
0: Oh, it's lovely to, to have you on. And um, if uh, listeners, if you enjoy sort of film talk uh, over audio, I, I do highly recommend checking out Ellen's show, uh, Screenshots, <laughs> that you co-host with Mark Kermode. Um Really nice to hear like a deep dive, uh, especially like a broadcast show, but like a deep dive audio format uh, around film. Often film shows are sort of magazine shows about new releases.
1: It's incredibly fun to make, to get to really go deep on different subjects each week. Yeah, we love
0: it. I guess we're talking to you sort of just on the eve of your book uh, being released out there into the the big wide world, Screen Deep.
1: I've actually got a copy, a proper copy to show you.
0: Oh wow. you have seen
1: the PDF, but I was very excited to have the actual thing here. So, uh
0: listeners, the book is beautiful and uh and uh, actually in the show notes we'll have a link to to visit your website and and to purchase the book as well, but um
1: Oh, very kind. Thank you.
0: It's a that's a really nice edition. What's it like to hold that finished book now after I mean you must have been working on this for years?
1: Well, it's a funny thing. It's kind of a, a... I was working on it for years without knowing it because um, I guess about 10 years ago, I started writing about like the intersection of race and TV and pop culture and film quite reluctantly at first because when I started out in uh, writing about film journalism, like for instance, I never wanted to write about rom-coms because I thought, oh, well, I'm a girl journalist. I'll be writing about rom-coms for the rest of my life. And similarly, like being a person of colour in quite a white dominated media as British media is, you don't want people to think, that that 's all you do, you know that that, that you 're only going to write about race and' because on the one hand there's this there's this especially sort of post twenty twenty when people have been thinking about you know with black lives matter movement people have been thinking about race a bit more there 's this quite noble urge to cover these subjects um and to have them covered by someone who presumably has some personal experience of of race and racism, which would mean someone a person of color, and so that that 's on the one hand, and you want to kind of you know, applause that and go along with that and do your bit. But on the other hand, it's, you know, just because you're, Daniel Kaluuya said this in an interview once, which I thought was great because he was being asked about, you know, how do we solve racism in the film industry? And I think his answer was just because I'm a black person doesn't mean I'm interested in racism. You know, I'm interested in music. (laughs) That's the thing that I read books about. And, you know, so that's, so so on the other hand, you want to kind of resist that assumption, but um, once I did start writing about race and film and TV, it turned out I did actually find the topic totally fascinating. So, so I'm in that happy kind of position of doing that. So, I'd, so, so once I kind of embraced the topic, I began writing about it on all different angles. Like I remember one early thing I wrote was about digital blackface, like this thing, this thing where online of um, people using or overusing um, like gifts of of sort of flamboyant black people like uh, femme gay men or black women from reality tv shows or or it might be like actually posing as a black person online and so this sort of like new iteration of this quite old entertainment industry phenomenon of blackface and it was and i just found it really interesting like how it how something that a lot could be dismissed as quite kind of frivolous and silly actually had these quite damaging consequences so i think that's a lot of what the book is in a way, like saying, look, I know we love watching films and telly and it's a big part of our leisure activities, but that doesn't mean it's not important as well, that that this is how, you know, all the ideas that we absorb get into the ether for us to absorb them in the first place. um, And that those ideas are worth examining. Um, And also that that doesn't mean you can't still enjoy books and telly, like to have a kind of critical stance on something isn't, dismissing it in fact it's the opposite it's saying this is something important and valuable and worth really talking and thinking about
0: absolutely i think it's uh i mean film really does sort of dominate pop culture and it's a really good like slice of what's happening in society at you know any point a film is made and, and I, that's why i love going back through historical films because you really yes. get a sense of you know what was happening in the 1930s or 40s or, or whatever in, in this particular country or in this society and films more so than other media are not always preserved and, and sort of available, but there is so much film, um, especially in America, that has been preserved. Um, so it is quite a good resource um, it, you know, from a societal or a cultural studies sort of point of view.
1: Yeah. And it's and it's that thing as well, like you say, of, of it almost being accidentally absorbing the kind of mood of the time. Like sometimes I think people think I'm accusing all these great directors of being racist and that's not exactly it. Sometimes I am, but <laughs> um, more it's just that like, Films like any other culture artifact, like you say, are kind of absorbing the mood of the times and you can get a real sense of what the kinds of ideas that are floating about are not because someone's intentionally kind of having this message of like why people are the best or something like that, but because that's just in the air. And and because film such a fascinating insight into our worldview, it kind of picks all that up.
0: This is something that you're professionally, you know, sort of experiencing and, and and working on, you know, in maybe in like more capsule format. But when did you think actually this is this could be great for a book? Was it always going to be a book? Could it have ever been a, a podcast or a radio show or a magazine column? Or?
1: It could and has been most of those things <laughs> <laughs> in some form or other. But um, in 2020, I'm sure you remember after George Floyd was murdered, there was this big kind of reckoning and it went into all kinds of aspects of society. And lots of people were, in the case of white people, generally, for for the first time, perhaps really seriously thinking about what they in their roles and their industries ought to be doing to address racism. Um, and during that period, I was approached by the publishers, Faber, because I had, as I say, been writing about the kind of intersections of race and, and film for some time. Um, and they asked me to write a book kind of somewhere in this area. And that's kind of when I sort of decided to come up with this idea like they, they they i think they wanted like a initially the idea was like a kind of collection of interviews with prominent black filmmakers and i wasn't that um kind of enthused by that idea partly because i just thought you know if tarantino gets his own book so should spike lee kind of thing and and also i, I wanted to kind of push back on this idea that it's a that black filmmaking is a genre unto itself. You know, obviously people are making lots of different black filmmakers are making lots of different kinds of films, and brown filmmakers are too, and so on. But I was obviously delighted that that was something that they wanted to do, and that they came to me to have a think about it, and then and then Screen Deep kind of came out of that. The title is a bit of a of a it's a slightly tongue-in-cheek provocation. Like the the subtitle is Screen Deep is obviously just a a, a pun on Skin Deep and this idea. Um, I wanted to kind of use it to alert people to the fact that the book's about race and, and screen storytelling and, and cinema and, and film. But the, the subtitle, um, How Film and TV Can Solve Racism and Save the World, like I think... A lot, my publishers especially looked a little bit askance at that. There was a bit of eyebrow raising <laughs> and I had to explain to them, look, it's kind of like, it's kind of a satire on Hollywood's sort of self-important bombast and the idea that, you know, the, the, you know, the, which you see, it's awards season at the moment, but you see, you know, especially at awards season when people are patting themselves on the back for changing the world and, you know, going, moving in the right direction and so on. Um, so it's sort of half that and half there is like a genuine, belief in the power of of what i call screen storytelling which is a sort of slightly wordy way of saying film and television i really do believe that like storytelling in general is at the root of who we are as humans like i i was i read sort of books on like the <laughs> evolution of of homo sapiens and so forth and, and a lot of anthropologists um believe that when we evolved the capacity to tell stories that's when we were able to go from being in small kind of hunter gatherer tribes to building big societies because a story is what unites can unite a lot of people around um a, a goal i think you see that in politics as well as in film and tv um but that but then specifically when it's on screen there's something about that that really kind of gets sort of bypasses the logic and goes straight to the heart and the emotions and, and so i think for something big like racism which is very embedded in our societies and our psyches screen storytelling is kind of, is like actually ideally placed to tackle it even though we think of it as a kind of frivolous leisure time activity you cite so
0: many films in the book how did you sort of like assemble your sort of film watching list? Was it a good excuse to, you know, get a load of DVDs in or to sort of go to somewhere like the BFI and just sort of sit and and, and watch?
1: Sometimes I would sort of zero in on a particular actor and then try and kind of understand their career. Like there's a quite an extended bit on Sidney Poitier and Paul Robeson, Riz Ahmed and Rita Moreno. And like sometimes it was an an actor was a good way into a, a subject but just, you know, once it, it, this is the glory of this subject, like once you start reading around something, there's always another film and another film and, you, and then you try and track things down and I had people to help me. Like there's a, there's a film called Bar the First Black Superman. It's got various different titles, which is this kind of black exploitation era, um sort of a superhero movie um filmed it around the the sort of watts tower area of south central la um it's very very good <laughs> it's a really fun watch um but like that was you know quite hard to get hold of and i had to like get people to help me out with that stuff like that and so so there was some like detective work involved too <laughs> and, and that's quite satisfying when you track something down
0: The book is out now there's a a link to it in the show notes but um if anyone's sort of listening now thinking you know i've either read or i'm about to pick up the book you know is there any sort of key films i should check out is there anything you'd you'd recommend if if people as like a priority maybe
1: well i I mean i I tried very hard to write the book i Firstly, there's a lot in there, so i'm I can guarantee this is my author's guarantee that there will be something in there that you more than one thing in there that you've seen and you're familiar with, and that you you that you can think, "Oh yeah, that's great, I'll read about that but also you know, I try to write about things that are more obscure or lesser seen in a way that you don't need to have seen it to have to understand what I'm talking about and to um get something out of the out of the chapter um a lot of it is talking about stuff that. I mean, maybe I maybe I'm making assumptions here, but things like like for for my generation in the place that I grew up, stuff like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air was like canon text. So, <laughs> so stuff like that that people will I think will have seen. But then also, well, get out, get out the the uh, Jordan Peele film with Daniel Kaluuya in from 2017. That is a big turning point, I think in. The way we think about race in cinema and particularly in in the horror genre that's that's one that you're going to want to to see there's a big there's a chapter that sort of talks about that turning point imitation of life the um there's douglas sirk one from the late 50s that for me was like a big i mean it's a very important foundational film for me personally but um i also think there's something interesting in the fact that like that film was made long before i was born it's set in the country that I wasn't, you know, that I hadn't at that point visited. It's, it's, it's a very like, it's different for me, but it's still kind of really um, it represented me <laughs> in a, in a way that, that nothing I'd seen before then really did. And a little I've seen since then did. And I think there's something in that about the kind of complicated nature of screen representation and, and race that that we, we sort of want it to be straightforward um, like the fra- the I think the phrase is if you can see it, you can be it, which is like, I think that's a Michelle Obama phrase and like this idea that like young children of color need to see positive representations of people of color on screen. And there's 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 substance to that, but I think the truth is much more complicated that like good representation, you can see yourself represented in people who don't look exactly like you and in fact that's a positive experience. Um, and it's one that most people of colour have had because the film industry is, has for a long time mostly told stories about white people uh, on the mainstream film industry has, um, and actually a lot of white people, particularly white men, particularly posh white men, haven't had. <laughs> so, so like, and I, and part of the sort of... It's sort of, it's sort of a jokey point, but it's also a serious one, is that, like, I want to extend one of the ways in which having a more diverse representation in, on screen is the positive... Is that it's going to give white men that experience, which is expanding your empathies to people who don't look like you, um, and that's another way in which representation is important. So, so um, I can't remember how I started. Oh yeah, Invitation of Life. So yeah, so that that's so that's an, another recommendation. <laughs>
0: Now, what we like to talk about on this podcast uh, is, of course, runtimes. So I, I do wonder what's your relationship with the film's runtime like? Does it, does it ever sort of, you know, come up if you're deciding what to watch? Or really, is that like the last thing you're thinking about uh, when it comes to a movie?
1: I used to be very strict and a stickler for it and believe that, um, you know, as as is the foundational principle of this podcast that no film should be over ninety minutes. <laughs> but God, everything's so long these days that I've sort of had to kind of get on board with it. I was saying to my co Mark, my co-host on screenshot the other day, like, we were talking about um Jean Dillman, the 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 uh, Chantal Ackerman film, which is like I think it's three hours and twenty two minutes, um, and um, when I first went to see that in the cinema, I was like, you know, flipping out. This is going to be <laughs> an ordeal, and. Admittedly, I did fall asleep twice during it, but <laughs> it, that, the length of it was an experience. And I was saying to Mark, it doesn't even feel that long anymore, like since Killers of the Flower Moon and Oppenheimer and everything like that's like that's like a normal film length these days. So, um, yeah, I've sort of become less strict about that. I do still love a, a nice, tightly constructed 90 minute or less film. I think there's a real skill in that that deserves to be admired. So,
0: when I uh, reached out about doing this podcast, how did you go about choosing uh, a, a film for us?
1: Well, I wanted something, obviously, that, that I got, would enable me to talk about the themes of, of my book, Screen Deep. And so I chose this film partly because of one of the key actors in it. In fact, mainly because of one of the key actors in it, Frank Silvera, who is among a group of actors well well not not official group of actors but in my mind group of actors who came up a lot in the in the research of the book and that's kind of people who were sort of racially ambiguous and had kind of interesting careers in a hollywood that was very because of the sort of production code but also just the sort of attitudes of the time was very strict about racial boundaries So that's part of the reason why I chose Killer's Kiss. Um, I also chose it just because I love the film. I love a 1950s crime drama. Um, I do think you can really see in this film, it's Stanley Kubrick's second film, like the kind of incredible detail oriented filmmaker that he would one day become. And it's it's not just under 90 minutes it's under it's not just under 80 minutes it's under 70 minutes so it also has that to recommend it it's 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 rare you find a film a film that counts as a feature film (laughs) that's that short 67 minutes baby So you got the back of the Kino Laura,
0: uh Blu-ray which is lovely 4k release uh, listeners if you if you like to buy the physical media along with the show uh, like i do like a one-man studio the legendary stanley kubrick brackets the killing the shining co-wrote co-produced shot edited and directed his second feature the dazzling film noir killer's kiss down and out new york city boxer uh, Davy Gordon, Jamie Smith, strikes up a romance with nightclub dancer Gloria Price, Irene Kane. Their budding relationship is violently interrupted by Gloria's boss, Vincent Rapello, Frank Savera, who has eyes for his employee. When Vincent and his thugs abduct Gloria, Davy is forced to search for her amongst the most squalid corners of the city, with his enemy hiding in the shadows." Um, and like you said, Stanley Kubrick's uh, second feature from 1955. And uh, he wore multiple hats making this movie, made it on a shoestring budget. I think he borrowed money from friends and family. and uh, But it got picked up by a studio and it did have a release.
1: He still managed to take like five months making it, which is an extraordinarily long time for a shoestring, low budget, independent film production. But then this is the guy who holds the record, I think, for the longest running uh movie shoot for Eyes Wide Shut, which was something like fifteen months with like something like forty six consecutive weeks. So wild. Um so he was just warming up. He was just warming up. <laughs>
0: I think Kubrick's someone who, who kind of like learned on the job. Like he he didn't um he didn't sort of apprentice as a runner or, or sort of work his way up. Like he just started directing short films uh, after working as a photographer. And uh and the short films, I think they were sort of commercially successful for for shorts. He managed to sell them to distributors and would get more money. And then I think after he made a couple of shorts, um he he was like, oh, I'm gonna make a feature mm. now.
1: Well as you say he was a photographer for look Magazine, um, which I think gave him a lot of the insight into the seedier corners of new York New York life at the time, the underbelly there's some great location shoots in like Times Square and these other these kind of tall warehouse buildings um, in Manhattan, and I think he's kind of picked up. He he knew these places quite well from his work as a sort of a, as a photojournalist, a magazine uh, photographer. Yeah, so I think it did inform him, and he also met one of those earlier short films was a documentary about boxing that I think was quite well received, and um, the main character in, in uh, Killer's Kisses is, is a sort of down is Luck, should be a retired boxer and there's there's a really good among there's a couple of really good set pieces like scenes in this and one of them is is a boxing uh match which feels oddly authentic despite the sound being weird cuz um he messed up Kubrick messed up the sound a bit on this movie
0: <laughs> No you you you're totally right you're totally right I think he was looking uh, films with his like photographer's eye especially like early on his career where he's sort of shooting on location you definitely see that in there um which actually uh, you know a lot of these early films are sort of you know they were sort of made hard to find by Kubrick uh he didn't particularly endorse them so if you only see his later films when you see these films it's like a breath of fresh air you know they still feel really fresh and contemporary but for like quite different reasons
1: quite innovative yeah yeah, there's like there's a dream sequence in this. Um, I've, we've just done an episode of screenshot on dream sequences, so I'm particularly interested in it. But like, he, where he uses like the negative of the film. To sort of have a camera moving through the street at night it's quite just quite a brief sequence but it's, it's still really eye-catching and then there's a big like chase and fight scene that takes place entirely in a mannequin um warehouse which is fantastic <laughs> it's
0: really stunning and consider i think it's techniques like that which make the film sort of punch above its weight in terms of mm. like the budget uh you know he doesn't have a lot of money to make this film but but he's using what he's got in a really innovative way and I mean, in only 67 minutes as well, which helps the budget probably, you know, sort of just really amplify whatever he's deciding to to put on screen there. It was really great to sort of go and, and, and watch this. And I, I was like scribbling so many notes, even though it was such a short film, because there was always like something It was moving on to something fresh and, 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 and sort of interesting. there.
1: Yeah. To bring it back to my main point of interest, Frank Silvera. I think the acting's pretty good as well. <laughs> like, I, Frank Silvera, he was this guy who was, uh, he plays like the villain in the film, a guy called Vincent Rapello. He was like a member of the actor's studio. He, he was founded various, he did a lot of Broadway work, founded various theatre groups. Um, after his death, there was a group called Frank Silvera Writers Workshop Foundation founded in 1973, and that's still going. They just celebrated their 50th anniversary. So he was like very plugged into, This actually in the 1940s and 50s, this kind of Broadway actors scene that uh, Paul um, Robeson and Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier were all kind of a part of, too, and was very kind of interracial and like quite an exciting place to work, it seems. Um, So like he was a proper actor, I guess is my point. And and you can tell that from his performance, like it's he's he's the villain, but it's quite sort of naturalistic and sort of there's a sort of easy charm to him in certain scenes. And like, you know, there's no sort of mustache twirling. He has a mustache, but he doesn't at any point twirl it. Um And, and so it's just, it's quite an, it's quite a sophisticated performance. I think more sophisticated than you might expect of a villain in a kind of low budget 1950s crime, n- noirish crime filler.
0: Absolutely. I think, um, He's sort of the most established actor in the film, and I think that mm. really shows. And and the other actors, I think, all benefit from having him around. Like I think the quality of performance sort of jumps up when it's a scene that contains him because his character looms large, but also the performance he gives, yeah, is is a little bit more compelling. And and I guess he's really good at responding to the other actors who are maybe a little bit like less uh, experienced there. So it's kind of a again, like, I guess, making your Adding to the production value, like Kubrick going for a theatre actor, an experienced theatre actor.
1: And then I, I guess, well, let me tell you about Frank Silvera because this is the, the sort of interesting secondary layer to this to this film that I that I I'm still kind of puzzling over whether how aware Kubrick was at this. But basically, Frank Silvera was um, born in Jamaica. His mum was probably a mixed race Jamaican woman. Mixed race meaning some African heritage and some European heritage. And his dad was what gets called a, a Spanish Jewish guy. So um, like a sort of a subgroup of Sephardic Jews. But he moved to America fairly early in his life. And in America at that time, there wasn't really a sort of plausible possible racial identity of being mixed race. You were either white or you're a Negro Um and uh so he, you know, married another, another a black woman, was self conceived of as a, they would have used that word, the word Negro, which sounds a bit racist and old fashioned today, but I'll use it in this context. Um, and. Um, and, you know, lit would have lived in segregated America, would have lived in a black area um, and, and so on. But his appearance being quite light skinned, quite racially ambiguous. I mean, to me, actually, I'd be curious to know what you think, but I, I'm like, I'm a mixed race person who grew up in an area in a time where that was a plausible identity, racial identity and there were lots of other mixed race people. And when I look at him, he looks mixed race to me. But for audiences of the time, his race was much more ambiguous and he very often played white roles the role in this in this film it's not explicitly said the race of the character but he's got an italian name and most indicative he's kissing a white woman um and according to the rules of the you know hayes production code it wasn't allowed for for interracial kissing miscegenation they would have called it It was kind of outlawed under the not outlawed but not allowed under the the um production code the motion picture production code so I think that he was playing a white character, and and possibly even was thought thought to be white by the rest of the production crew. It's it's hard to know because the sort of the ideas of race have moved on, which is in itself kind of fascinating. But what do you, do you? How do you racialize him when you look at him? I guess you knew this context going in, but. I,
0: I, I think I guess I had a little bit of a heads up uh, yeah. there, but I, I guess in the terms of the film, I was trying to think of the character, and you're right because of the, his surname, mm. like it sounds like an Italian name. I was, I guess I was, I guess Kubrick envisioned this character to be Italian, you know, and like maybe it's more of like we don't know his, you know, if he's like a, a first generation immigrant or if he, mm. how long he's been in the states, you know, what his sort of family heritage is supposed to be, but um, but I guess it's you know it's it's quite a a trope, um, especially in New York, to have you know sort of underworld type figures yeah. with Italian surnames. So yeah, I wonder exactly. if <clears throat> Kubrick's going for a more well trodden noir kind of note there. And I, I I do wonder like if he actually thought about he obviously thought about the casting because he cast an amazing actor in this role. But if he was sort of thinking about the sort of wider connotation um, of of the casting, and I guess because Kubrick wasn't super proud of his earlier films there isn't really much from him about yeah. his casting choices yeah. which is a is a real shame
1: I re- I mean I really don't think that he was thinking about that and the reason I say that is because this is it would have been historic <clears throat> I've done a bit of research into like what is the first interracial kiss um on screen and there's various contenders um like what if I asked you what's the first interracial kiss on screen what would you guess uh, I I
0: am kicking myself because it's in your book uh, and I can't remember the answer. But I think it's a later film, the nineteen fifty five, wasn't it? Like nineteen fifty seven or, or or a bit later in the
1: fifties. Well, no, you see, you're trying to be too clever. <laughs> what, what, I'm, what I'm really asking is what most people think of as the first intellectual kiss, and I, I think it's maybe maybe listeners to the podcast will correct me, but I think most people think it's um, Lieutenant Uhura. Um, kissing Captain James T. Kirk in Star Trek which was an episode of Star Trek called Plato's Stepchildren from 1968 okay that was like a big deal at the time right Mm. but actually there are several kind of other earlier contenders for for that one of which is Killer's Kiss which for various reasons to do with the changing way we racialize people haven't kind of come up in the conversation but this would be in terms of black people kissing white people which is the most in america given the con- the context of segregation and jim crow and so on and slavery this that was the most kind of fraught pairing i think this might be one of the first ones but it doesn't does it the question is does it count because he was not playing a black character he may not have been sort of out as it were as a black man on set um and in fact, one of the one of the weird things about this film is there was a uh, film made in 1983 about the making of this film called Stranger's Kiss. And in that film, Frank Silvera is, is played by um a guy called Richard Romanus, who's a Lebanese American actor. Um so they didn't sort of I mean it's it would have been difficult to replicate his exact racial mix, but um but um in that instance he's sort of not played by a black guy either. But yeah, no, so it's, it's I, yeah, I just sort of find it endlessly fascinating. It, 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 and he wasn't like, in being a racially ambiguous person, especially a character actor in the 20th century in the studio system and outside in independent film, he wasn't that unusual. There were quite a lot of people who actually made a career almost out of it. Was, um, I, I interviewed Rita Moreno for the book, the um, Oscar-winning actress from West Side Story, um, and she spoke... She, She's got a, a um a brilliant documentary actually about her life and I think she's written a memoir as well. And she speaks about calling about being what she calls the house ethnic, which is whereby she, because of her appearance, she's a Puerto Rican woman, um, but like, you know, in the sort of unsophisticated racial politics of the time, she's just like not white. And therefore she would play like all kinds of island girls or like she you know she'd play southeast asian she would play native american there's a like there's a whole terrible history of indigenous american people being being both simultaneously always on screen in westerns and completely erased from the screen that they'd very often be played by white people in red face makeup or italian americans or in puerto ricans in rita moreno's case but so so actually you could have quite a um uh Busy, (laughs) um, varied career as a sort of racially ambiguous person playing these kind of character roles. Where you would have trouble is if you wanted to be a movie star or play lead roles or something like that. Because in those kinds of that for that kind of career, you have to have romance roles usually. You're going to be a romantic lead in something, Um, and there you run into the anti-miscegenation part of the Hayes Production Code. So. Um, Frank Silvera has got away with it In this kind of low budget independent picture But um, there's a, a a film of the play Emperor Jones uh, The Eugene O'Neill play Which actually interestingly enough As an aside Frank Silvera Played the role on stage it's a very famous black Role like it's like he also played Othello fellow on stage So so he did play black characters on stage As well as white ones but um, there's a There's a film of Emperor Jones starring Paul Robeson the great black actor The sort of probably the first black movie star. His uh, romantic lead is the woman called Freddie Washington, um, who, to bring us back to Imitation of Life, my favorite film, she she starred in the 1934 original uh, version of Imitation of Life. And she was, again, someone who, according to the racial definitions of the time, would have been considered a Negro. Um, but she had mixed European, African blood and quite a light-skinned appearance, um, quite a sort of European, Euro-adjacent appearance. But she was um came from a black community everyone knew her to be a black woman like throughout her career um and she plays in imitation of life she plays a a black woman who's passing as white which is this whole you know (laughs) phenomenon that that exists in the 20th century of, 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 of america but she so she played sorry the um she played the romantic lead opposite um, Paul Robeson in Emperor Jones. And there's a kissing scene. And when the censors saw it, they said, you can't have that because it looks like a white woman kissing a black man, which is completely forbidden. So they had to reshoot it with her wearing skin darkening makeup for the for the film, even though she was considered to be a black woman. She didn't look dark enough on screen. And therefore they had to... Um, to darken her her face with makeup, and I think you know Rita Moreno has lots of these wild. Sh- Rita Moreno was asked to darken her skin in um, West Side Story. She did darken her skin in West Side Story because even though she was a Puerto Rican woman, she didn't look Puerto Rican enough for whatever the the uh, intentions of the filmmakers were. So, um, so she she ended up in this kind of absurd position.
0: <laughs> wow. I find all of that stuff so like fascinating of like mm. these like yeah societal decisions at the time and like how people had to work if they wanted to work in yeah. showbiz and you know like f- people sort of making these sort of judgments and 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 things. It's uh it's exactly it's, it's kind of wild.
1: Well I would love to have been able to interview Frank Silvera about, you know, his own sort of sense of racial identity and this incredible career he had. Both because of and in spite of all the racial attitudes at the time, and um, I mean, he was a very proud black man. It should be said, like especially in the '60s when all the civil rights stuff was going on, like he took out an advert in in Variety and all the trade press. Protesting against the racism in the film industry at the time, which is a very brave thing to do, he founded all these organisations for black actors and black writers. He founded a, 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 the Theatre of Being workshop with Van Til Whitfield, which was specifically to train black actors and help them um, avoid these kind of racial stereotypes, which still exist in in the screen industry today. So, yeah, he was very much proud of his. Of his identity as a black man but like but also the his ambigu the racial ambiguity played a part in his career as well so yeah unfortunately he died very young um in like a freak accident with a um garbage disposal unit oh no, <laughs> um, yeah yeah um but um but he'd left an incredible legacy even though people don't necessarily remember his name now as i say this this um writers workshop foundation is still doing great work in his name so He's remembered.
0: He has a lot of credits, even considering his short life, and you know he would have still been working when he, he was he passed away. He was sort of very active and celebrated, uh, nominated for awards. I think nominated for a Tony Awards. Like this, this, this large career in, in quite a short space of time.
1: Well, I do think you can tell how good he is in *Killer's Kiss*. Like from the first moment he appears on scene, which is um, the female leads getting in his car. Having kind of walked downstairs in parallel with the the male lead, um, they they sort of then go their separate directions, and you see that she's got this sort of older boyfriend, stroke boss type character, which he is. Um, but just from that very that early exchange, there's something about his naturalism which is really sort of striking. He's he's a good actor,
0: absolutely. Like you're already sort of wondering, you know, like, what's the dynamic here? What's their relationship like? the way he's sort of you know sort of picking her up and watching her and seeing who she's with commenting on the guy uh, and then he knows who the guy is as well he's like he's a boxer and that sort of stuff i do um I mean, I I I love that scene. I think the performance is good, but I also love that it's actually shot on a real street, and you see uh, the lead go onto the the, the uh, underground, um, in the subway in New York, and and then there's like actually a scene shot on the subway, and we get a little bit of like you know documentary style slice of what New York looked like at that time on the subway, and what Times Square looks like later on.
1: And this whole phenomenon of like the place where. Um... Frank Silvera's character, Vincent, and um Irene Kane as, as Gloria. She's like she her job is very specific time. She's a taxi dancer, which is like this idea that you would go to a dance hall as a man and like hire a woman to dance with you. So sort of low-level sex work, basically. But um but that but, but they existed in these kind of slightly seedier sort of nightclubs at that time. Um and it's something that she, that we later find out that she's fallen into um because of her family situation so yeah that that that, all that kind of stuff is really if you're interested in the kind of social history is great
0: there's establishing shots of her place of work which i assume was just a real um club you know yeah. uh, and it has you know like adverts saying like 50 girls to choose from or, or, or something similar outside and and it's like you know very prominent in the middle of a, like a neon lit uh area with like cinemas over the road and i was like trying to like stop the film and seeing what films were playing yeah i oh, always <laughs> want to see what films are playing
1: and you see a, a cinema and a movie yeah that's a great one <laughs> that figures to be all my life i've always spoiled the things that meant the most to me all my life.
0: I really don't care. I just want you to get out of here. Gloria,
1: please, can't you understand? If, if only you could know how low and worthless I feel. I didn't even know you had any feelings. Oh, you foolish girl. I'm, I'm mad about you. I want to get you out of here. I'll set you up right. I'll be your slave nothing, for the rest of nothing. my life. Nothing, You couldn't do anything for Please, me. all right, don't forgive me. Just tolerate me. And let me suffer knowing how you feel. Can't you get it, Finny? To me, you're just an old man
0: you smell bad on the casting like it's a very intimate cast like there really is only sort of three main characters and, and a couple of like secondary characters who don't maybe have much lines like some gangster thugs and some policemen mm. uh sort of types but um but again it's like about this very efficient filmmaking that kubrick's doing like he's got a uh, probably enough budget to tell a story with three main characters shoot it on location and him being just so pragmatic in how He's gonna use this. Uh, I think it was like a forty thousand dollar budget, like not very much money at all.
1: And you notice the um, there's a ballet scene, which is, again is like an extraordinarily sort of unusual thing to have in the middle of a nineteen fifties neo noir crime thriller. There's quite an extended scene of, of, of a ballet dance, which plays which plays over the top of of um, Irene Carr's character talking about her kind of difficult childhood and her relationship with her sister, because her sister was a ballet dancer. And the ballet dancer was played by Ruth Sabotka, who was Kubrick's wife at the time, um, and also, I think, the production designer on the film. So, so yeah, still, they were keeping it in the family for sure.
0: That sort of adds more value to the film and and some spectacle. But, you know, he, he has access to a ballet dancer yeah. who's involved in the film <laughs> and I'll let shoot you. I thought a lot of the voiceover. So the film begins with voiceover from our lead, and he's kind of like, which is very noir, you know, like, how did I get here today? And and then you sort of go through the the last few days to sort of see why he is where he is. But I, I really thought that was smart just to make give depth to the 67 minute long runtime, you know, using voiceover so we can see some action, but we can also be filled in on the context. And the ballet scene is, is such a, I thought, a really powerful sort of a choice there. You go through sort of the, the uh, the female lead sort of history and and her trauma and why she's ended up uh, where she has um and and it really sort of adds weight to the end of that story after you've been watching the ballet dancer for a few minutes quite experimental filmmaking as what i think
1: exactly any critic who saw this film at the time and didn't recognize the talent of kubrick should not be working <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like yeah, it's very obvious that this is a really interesting thoughtful yeah, experimental but still entertaining filmmaking at work here. That this is someone with real talent and potential. I think you can see that. Like, and and I and I do think it's not like one of those early films where you watch and you think, oh, you know, you can sort of see that there's some sparks of ideas here, but it's still a bit of a chore to get through. You know, being a delightful 64 minutes, <laughs> there's nothing chore-like about it. You know, I guess that I guess some of the dialogue maybe is a bit hokey, or you can tell that it was made on the cheap as well. Um, but but the fact that he's doing such artistic and interesting things with, within those limitations, I think, is is a sign of the great things that were to come. Kubrick,
0: especially early on in his career, was a big cinephile. And there are interviews with... Members of his crew who are like, he was always at the movies. And he's obviously absorbing film noir and, and feels sort of like he knows the genre enough to take his own stamp on it. But then because he's such a pragmatist, he's like, well, actually, film noir is quite cheap. You know, you do make it with low lighting. You can use real locations. You can tell this sort of in, uh, intimate story. And it's probably a genre that people want to see and would sell. So there's all of these little things like ticking away behind, behind him.
1: Do you think the ballet scene is a tribute to the red shoes? I sort of, I, you sort
0: of wonder because it's yeah. it gets quite expressive and yeah. throughout the film I think there are some like Hitchcockian techniques maybe like yeah. I think the the, the dream sequence being negative. like That made me, and when, when I was watching the film, sit up on my sofa like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. And and later in the film, someone gets punched and the camera gets smashed. Um, and I, that feels like you could you could lift it out of something like the 39 Steps from Hitchcock.
1: And of course, looking the 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 relationship between the two characters established by him spying on her through her window as well. So there's a bit of a window there as well. So true, yeah, very true. <laughs> and I think there's, a, there's some really... Interesting, like intelligent sociology, and in the kind of parallel that he's drawing between him as a boxer who's using his physicality to make a living and also being exploited by other people, and her as a kind of, as I was saying, low level sex worker who has to use her body to make a living and gets exploited by other people. In, you know, in a way, they're being exploited by the same person, Frank Silvera's character. He's not, he's not, I don't think he's explicitly. A boxing promoter but you get the sense that he might have once been a boxing promoter or something and now he's this nightclub owner because he sort of knows about the world of boxing and but yeah that i think that's a really interesting parallel yeah
0: and kubrick actually uh sort of makes us think about the parallels because he cross cuts between the boxing scene and the scene uh with Irene kane and frank silvera in his office and sort of the different conflicts that they're both exactly. going through yeah. in their professional lives at that point I also like that their apartments are like directly opposite each other. And like when they go down the stairs, they sort of do the same journey in reverse to sort of come out the door at the same time. There's a lot going on in this film. I mean, Kubrick, what a guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that guy could direct a movie, right? Or what?
0: <laughs> I think it is important, especially if you're a fan of his, to like go back and, and and sort of look at these early films just to sort of maybe sort of appreciate what he was working towards. Mm. and. And also, I, I think it's something that maybe he lost later in his career because of his own sort of personal decisions. But he he stopped sort of shooting on location as kind of as soon as he possibly could. <laughs> and he really wanted to control everything to his last film, also set in New York, is all shot on a soundstage in London, but like painstakingly recreated all of the streets that Tom Cruise walks down in Eyes Wide shut on a travelator <laughs> um, rather than going to New York to film it. And here actually we get to see Kubrick shooting the real streets of New York.
1: I have to say though, uh, I can really identify with that as an indoors person too. <laughs> and it is January. Like why go outside if you don't have to just stay inside. You got all your, you got all your nice DVDs and Blu-rays. <laughs> you've got your, you've got your TV don't need to go outside. I, I I I see you, Kubrick, and I understand you.
0: Hundred <laughs> percent. I, I think if if Zoom was around, was Kubrick was still working. I think he would love a he'd love a Zoom meeting. <laughs>
1: he would love a Zoom meeting. Yeah, camera would be off though. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: this film is packed full of detail for 67 minutes um, and it's a really sort of nice sort of slice of film history and like you know uh new york and and just on like a historical sort of point of view and and like a little nod to you know the the noirs of the 1930s um which kubrick probably would have grown up watching and and yeah it's just a, it's a nice sort of like uh nexus point <laughs> of, of
1: cinema yeah like i mean compared to his next like to to the killing, like his next film, it's probably less sort of sinewy and tightly plotted. Um but I like like we've been saying, I appreciate all those sort of flights of fancy and the dream sequence and the ballet dance and stuff like that. There's 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 some pleasure in those bits too.
0: I loved, loved watching this film and, and really loved uh, talking about it with you, Ellen. Thank you for, for picking it and adding it to our fictional film festival. What we like to do at this uh, at this festival, our fictional film festival, is we do like to sort of you know, end up by showing the movie and, and putting the film on a big screen. And uh, if I could give you a, a print of the film, and a uh, you know, a blank check to, to choose a venue um, you know and sort of curate your screening environment. Uh, is there a, a, a particular place, cinema or other, you would like to show uh, Killer's Kiss?
1: We did a special on Screenshot a little while ago on um, the film The Harder They Come, the 1973 Jamaican film with Jimmy Cliff um, about reggae music and um, heard incredible tales from um, Barbara Blake Hannah, who was the PR on that film and became a kind of trailblazing Blackbridge British journalist um, about the premiere which took place in carib theatre in kingston so i would like frank silvera to bring this film home in a way and i'd like for it to be screened at the carib theatre in kingston Oh, wow. That would be
0: great. Uh, also nice to, uh, you know, sort of a good excuse for people to travel. Yeah. You know, like, let's all go to Kingston and watch this film. That would be a great tribute to, to Frank Silvera. If you could invite a guest, um, you know, is there anyone you'd like to talk about this film, maybe as an intro or a q and
1: I'd like to, well, I'd like to talk to Frank Silvera. Um, I'd love to talk to King D. Benadir, the actor, about it, partly because he's a mixed race British British actor. Um he's he's about to play Bob Marley in a in a Bob Marley biopic as well. So there'd be that Jamaican connection there. But I think it'd be fascinating to reflect on like how his career has has compared to Frank Silvera's career. Um and uh and just yeah, talk about those sorts of things. So that would be fun. He's great, he's great, he's great, you know. He plays Malcolm X in um uh Regina King's film One Night in Miami as well. He's brilliant in that, so. Yeah, I'd love to talk to him.
0: Yeah, he's really sort of taking the taking the world by storm and was was in Barbie as well, uh, sort yeah. of in the chorus yes. of Ken's. Yeah, he um, could do
1: comedy too, yes. Yeah, so he'd be funny.
0: I think he's also an actor who has a theatre background or sort of came up in theatre training, so like a nice parallel maybe with, with Frank Silvera's career uh, there too. Oh, That'd be fascinating.
1: I've never met him, but I've heard he's a nice person as well, so I think he'd be a good person. To he's talk
0: very to. welcome <laughs> at our festival. Uh, that but would yes. be a, a joy. <laughs> You're in charge of, of this screening. It's, it's your cinema for the day. Uh, if you could uh, you know, maybe decide what the kiosk is going to be selling for you know, drinks and snacks, is, is there anything that you personally like to enjoy at the cinema or maybe something you think would pair well with The Killer's Kiss?
1: Let's keep with the Jamaican theme. Um, and um, let's have some ackee and saltfish and fried dumpling and maybe some little plantain chips and cans of ting.
0: Absolutely. Okay. That sounds that sounds awesome. That sounds delicious. What I like about a nice um you know, sort of short film is, you know, maybe maybe actually you have a little few snacks for the film, but there's time for dinner afterwards. Yeah. We could have a buffet exactly. or something. <laughs>
1: why why uh restrain ourselves to popcorn when there's all these options available
0: <laughs> uh this sounds like a, 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 a awesome screening it's our first kubrick film in the festival our first screening in jamaica uh, what a time
1: <laughs> what a time to imaginarily be alive <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for, for talking to us today, Ellen. It's been great to have you on the show. So a big fan of listening to your work and, and loved reading the book. And the book is available now, uh, listeners. Uh, link in the show notes. Um, and also, you know, check out uh, Screenshot, yes. the weekly radio show, which goes in deep on some big subjects.
1: Green deep, in fact. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> uh,
0: you're, you're a natural. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's been really nice uh, to talk, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you so much. And listeners, if you do want to check out Killer's Kiss, uh, um, it is available on, on various sort of streaming services. And there's a lovely 4K Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, uh, which you can check out too.
1: Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you for
0: listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice so you'll never miss an episode. You can also leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you have a moment, why not share an episode with your friends? Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby enjoy those shorter films folks we'll be back in a couple of weeks we're a proud member of the stripped media network